0: You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all.
1: Is there a thread that connects who you are to who you are? Out of the darkness into the light, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where you explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, a little later, Brian D. Kaplan, the author of J.D. to J.D., My Journey from Juvenile Delinquent, the doctor of jurisprudence. But first, we start with Angelo Fraboni, Artistic Director of the Madison Theater located on the campus of Malloy College on Long Island, New York. Angelo, hi, how are you doing?
2: I'm doing great, Larry. Thank you for having me on today.
1: All right. So let's talk about first the history of the Madison Theater. Give us some insight. How was it developed and what is your role in developing that great venue?
2: Well, I was hired, uh, I was hired in 2011, just before it opened, probably six months before it opened. The history of it is that the college president, Drew Bogner, really felt that arts was an important part of the education of the students. And he felt that arts was an important part of the education of of the regular people. So they hired me and they brought me in. I was, I don't know how I got hired because I messed up every part of the interview. I Spelled inaugural season wrong. I mean, every I, you know, you do all your proof and you do everything you're supposed to do, and nothing really works. And I actually looked at the plans of the theater, and I sort of tore it apart. I didn't really tear it apart, but I told them everything that they were doing wrong and how they were building it. You know, they didn't put in a loading door. You know, to load in these theaters, I, you know, they put the dress rooms near the classrooms, and I said, we're gonna have all these different problems. They built this beautiful orchestra shell. And they didn't have any doors in it, so the orchestra couldn't get on stage. And you know, So I was pointing at all these things and came home, and my wife said, so how did the interview go? And I said, I'm not going to get the show. I basically told them everything they had done wrong in the process. And uh, lo and behold, I got hired. I got called the next day and asked to come in for a meeting. And I was doing five shows off-Broadway at the time, producing different shows. And I said, "I, I didn't have time. I had to go to these other meetings. They said, make time. I walked in, and it was our... Orientation. And I turned to Ed Thompson, my boss, and said, I can't start work. I mean, I, I have all these other shows. I didn't even know I was hired. Right. So that was my process. But looking at the theater, you know, with some of the limitations it has, it's a great theater and we're able to do a lot of great stuff. In 2011, we opened the show. We actually got the theater five days before we had this massive gala performance with Martin Short and we had Mario Cantone and Katie Hoffman. Alan Zweibel actually wrote the opening gala for me. We had a full orchestra. I mean, it was just a massive, massive show. And uh, I produced and directed this show with dancers and singers and rock bands. And it was like a night of 100 stars. And it was hugely successful. It was, you you know, people didn't expect the theater to be able to do what we did. You know, I was fortunate that I had a lot of great people from New York that came out. I had hired all my friends to do all the technical sides of it, the sound and the lighting, the projections and everything. So I don't think they were expecting that type of a production uh, from the Madison Theater or Monoy College. But uh, since then, we've produced hundreds of different types of shows. It took three or four years for us to find our traction. The first year I really went into sort of an off-Broadway setting. I did a lot of original works, a lot of things that people didn't know anything about. And I think we were way too early or way too new to try to establish something like that. People weren't coming to these shows because they'd never heard our titles. It was just too avant-garde for them, even though the shows weren't avant-garde. So we really struggled to get an audience that first year. So the second year, we really changed the format and we went into some much more accessible works, much more familiar. I did more jazz. I did some concerts that people would recognize names from. The problem is, is that we have such a small theater that you can't bring in big names. Um, but by the fifth year, we were doing much better. We were getting our audiences back in. And the problem with our theater is that we only do about 40 or 50 different professional shows a year. And they're all different. You know, we have dance, we have opera, we have book signings you've actually hosted a few times there larry for some of our book signings and our, our talks you know we do speakers we do musical theater we do rock jazz we do swing time bands we do children's theater you know we do such a wide variety that it's hard to market the theater as one thing so we market it as an art center and we really have to figure out who our market is and our target market for each of those uh, demographics for each of those programming it's caused some problems but it's also given us a wider wider range of people who know the theater, a wider demographic in our community and our patronage, which has helped us a lot. you know they've we, we've been able to cross-pollinate. So if we were just doing musical theater we'd only be getting those people who like musical theater but because we do authors and because we do ballet and because we do uh, we do a lot of creative stuff, we create our own works. You know, we get a lot of different people and they end up coming back for things that they normally wouldn't come in.
1: Right. I, this one question I have to ask, and by the way, if you're just joining us, my guest is Angela Fraboni, the artistic director of the Madison theater located on the campus of Molloy College, Long Island, New York, because this podcast goes all over the country and you have a great regional venue, in my opinion. But Broadway has gone dark other entertainment venues in the metropolitan area have gone dark doing programs like yours you have a very high quality program you're very kind to mention i have also hosted programs there especially uh we had a full house maria shriver it's the biggest audience i've ever been in front of and i've done programs in 92nd street one the satellite venues i've done libraries i've done public events at vineyards on long island that audience that night was really special It was so special and i never told you this before I got a very nice thank you note from Maria saying how much she was impressed by the venue and everything, not just that you do, but your whole staff does. Right. Broadway is dark. Venues are dark. Movie theaters may be shutting down because of the financial crisis. So right now, what does the future hold for the Madison Theater?
2: Well, it's an interesting thing. We still have our season planned. And believe it or not, our next se- or this coming up season was our 10th anniversary season you know it was our 10th season of being in uh we have to pull back a little bit and we have to become a little more creative it's not that we can't get the artists because the artists all need work
1: especially uh, now
2: yeah especially now and, and everyone's dying to get back to work but i think we're going to have a problem getting our patronage back or you know people aren't going to want to come to a theater in a you know a crowded theater and sit next to someone if if they know that the testing isn't done or if we don't have a vaccine for this. I think it's going to be slow in coming. So we actually have a meeting later on today about some alternative ways of delivering entertainment to our patrons and our community. Um, this summer, you know, we're looking at how we can do it by keeping them uh, separate. I don't want to give away anything, but I probably can. When is this going to air, Larry?
1: Pretty soon. But I, I for my sake, being selfish, I hope I'm part of that process because you're my favorite venue.
2: <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, we're looking at doing drive-in drive because we have big parking lots. We're looking at doing drive-in cabarets and concerts mm-hmm. so people can drive in and we'll space the cars and they can sit on their cars and they can watch concerts outside. Which is a pretty
1: cool idea if you think about it. Yeah. Going back to the original idea of going to the drive-ins. Absolutely.
2: We're looking at working with Broadway On Demand and we're doing live streaming so we can actually bring the artists to the theater. We can uh, film the concerts and do live performances at night uh, with Broadway On Demand. We can also put that in pay-per-view, and there's a variety of different programming that we can do. Uh, We have some limitations because we can't do like our carousel and concert, or all shook up, or any shows that we're licensing. We can't really put those out without dealing with sync licenses with all the unions and everything. So it becomes a much more complicated thing. But when we're dealing with individual artists or cabarets, things that we've created, it becomes a little simpler and a little more a little more straightforward, and we can still deliver high quality entertainment and high quality content for either Broadway on demand or even Altice, you know, channel 12, or, you know, we're looking and we're talking with all of them and how we can deliver this um, entertainment. to all. Now
1: I'm going to switch gears because you are the artistic director of the Madison theater. I'm going to mm-hmm. focus on the first word artistic, right? I'm going to talk about you a little bit, knowing each other a short over a period of time based on the interviews I've done Nelson DeMille and, uh, and Shriver, uh, Johnny and Kathy Lee Gifford, and of course, uh, the other ones we mentioned. The best present I ever got was two tickets to see Alvin Ailey. Oh, yeah. That night, Judith Jamison was doing Revelations with live music. Mm-hmm. I have never forgot that. What I did know, you started your professional career as what?
2: As a ballet dancer. I came right off of high school, and I got hired by Minnesota Dance Theater in Minneapolis, Lois Holton's company. And I, I was a ballet dancer for five or six years, seasons, and a principal for about three of those seasons. Yeah, that's how I started. It, so it what was,
1: is I, this is the first time I've interviewed a principal ballet dancer. So this is exciting for me. What is the discipline? People see you on stage. I think it's the tip of the iceberg. There's so many hours of training. It's very precise. It's very demanding. And I've seen the feet of ballet dancers. They take a beating. So what is it like preparing and then getting on stage in front of an audience? What is the energy?
2: Well, the energy is exciting, um, but preparing, you know, it's a fine art. I mean, you really have to, if you're not putting in a thousand hours, you're not going to be competitive. I really admire company dancers, ballet dancers and, and other company dancers, because the amount of work that goes into just to maintain their art form and to stay on top is, is extraordinary. I mean, the bloody toes, the bloody knees, the you know strained muscles, and and even when you're injured, you know, you find a way to get on stage. Um, that's why I, well, I actually left the ballet world because it was so much work. The contracts were very inconsistent. You know, especially in a regional dance company. You know, we worked maybe 32 weeks a year, and then the rest of the year I had to find other work. So. Uh, during one of our off seasons I auditioned for a West Side Story at Chan Hassan Dinner Theater in Minneapolis.
1: I love West Side Story.
2: Yeah, and I and I got the show and I worked and I thought, hey, wait, I got a check every week. I got paid more money than I was making at the ballet company. I didn't have to dance from nine o'clock in the morning to six o'clock and then perform. You know, it was I, I just felt I got to speak. I got to sing. And I thought, oh, this is glory. I, I, I'm leaving ballet. <laughs> so, so I went back one more time and I finished through the Nutcracker season. And then I went and did a chorus line and then I moved to New York. And that's, that's how I made my transition from ballet to musical theater.
1: So you've been on Broadway. I'm going to mention some shows. Give mm-hmm. us some insight to those that experience because they're very well known. Cat, mm-hmm. Victor Victoria, and of course... The Full Monte. <laughs> what was? Are you la- you're smiling. I'm smiling too. That must have been a unique experience. Uh,
2: yeah, it was. Uh, it, it's interesting because one of the most successful shows was The Full Monte. It really was such a brilliantly written show. But it was my least favorite show to perform because I didn't really do that much. I was a work a workhorse. So in Victor Victoria, I, w- I did a lot of dancing. I did. I was almost in all the scenes. I was constantly on stage. Cats was the same thing. It was a work. I did Jerome Robbins Broadway, where I was a workhorse in that, where I did a bunch of different numbers, and and even in a show that was not a critical hit, Dream, it was a Johnny Mercer review. Right. I did, you know, I was I did everything. I was in all the singing and all the dancing. I was just a workhorse. So in the full Monty, which was a brilliant show, I was on stage for four minutes and twenty six seconds. I actually timed it once, you know, for the entire show. I, everything I did, I was, I was walking on. I'd say a few lines and I'd walk off. You know, and I, I didn't really have a main main role in that. I understudied, you know, a couple of the uh, the leads, but you know, I didn't go on for them frequently. So I I got depressed because I was used to doing so much in a show, and it was such a great show. I felt like I you know I wanted to be more part of the show and more engaged in what I was doing. Not that I I I hated my experience. I just wanted to be you know I wanted to be doing more. And Victor Victoria was probably. The most fun I ever had in the show, just because we had such a mature cast, you know, a seasoned cast, I should say. And Julie Andrews was just a a wonderful person. She was a great lead. I learned a lot from her. But every time the company started getting down, she always had a way of bringing in bagels or having a a Sunday brunch spread for everyone. Every time she knew the morale was getting down. So we just had a lot of fun in that show. We had a great cast, a lot of great friends in that show. That was a, a wonderful experience. And cats.
1: You, know, you talk about, you know, in New York, there's something called a healthy soup is chicken soup. Bagels <laughs> is food group to make you feel really good about yourself. Now, in, in this time that we're going through, I think having a sense of humor and humor and laughter is so important. Oh. You work with comedians. Both mm-hmm. you and I have done programs with Alan Swibel, who I think is terrific going back to his days of SNL, by the way. And he did your gala and he did one of your comedy programs before you had to kind of shut down.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: What role was comedy playing? I know you've also worked with cause she's on my podcast library, Julie, Judy gold. Mm-hmm. She's, she's got a unique personality too. So how important is comedy to you personally and also to what you do booking events at the theater?
2: I love comedy just because people love to laugh and it's a great way for people to come together. And for me, I always thought I was a funny person until my wife says, you're not that funny. You know, everybody wants to be a comedian. Everyone wants to have that laughter. And I think it's another, like ballet, it's another art form that I just admire anyone who can do comedy, who can write, who knows the rhythms, who knows how to do it. But to the Madison theater, it's important because our patrons, you know, it's a whole different demographic. There are patrons that come to ballet that won't come to comedy, but there is a whole group of people that just love to come to comedy. Ah, uh, we've done New Year's Eve shows for comedy. We've had Chris Monty out there, who's who's done a great job. He's been out there three or four times. We've had great comedians besides Alan that have come. We do, fe- you know, the Long Island Comedy Festival. They bring great comedians. We do Mom's Night Out, which is hilarious, because you know it's all women comics. All women come to the show, and you just have five hundred women just laughing together, having a great time with all their husbands. And the last time we did Mom's Night Out, we had two men in the audience. It was my brother-in-law and me, and that was it. Well, there's one other guy, and he just got mercifully picked on. But I just, I just, it's a different type of feel, it, you know. It's that this is why I like uh, speakers and and like book signings as well. It's just a different genre of being entertained. And instead of having you know music blasting at you all the time or having uh, you know, dan- beautiful dancers are d- dancing and being excited by that. You're, you're just laughing and having, you're just having a great time. To me, comedy is imperative. I love laughing and I love my wife's laughter. She's probably the reason I do so much comedy because when she sits there and laughs, I laugh at her because she just loves to laugh. So that's why I think it's important. I think it's important for people's mental health, for their, you know, their sanity and people just want to escape and comedy is a great way of doing that.
1: And I just want to talk a little bit about the book signings. They're not just book signings. They're full-blown interviews. And yes. the nice thing about that is at the Madison Theater, for the ticket price, you get a signed copy of the book. You get you give a picture taken. So it's, it's a very interactive experience. And I wow. encourage that because usually at the end of my portion of the interview, we take questions from the audience. Mm-hmm. Because I really believe it's important for the audience, but it's also important for the feedback for the writer. Because most writers are in a bubble while they're working on a book. And even when they are doing TV programs and satellite radio programs, the most important thing, I believe, is being in front of an audience for that feedback. That is, I think, is almost paramount. Book sales are important, but it's the feedback from the people that came to see. They didn't come to see me. They came to see that writer. And I think that writer appreciates that. Now, I also believe in validation. I believe, if I get the date wrong, correct me, in 2009, you won the Drama Desk Award. What is that award and for what production? And by the way, congratulations. That's valid. Oh, yeah,
2: th- yeah, thank you. It's actually for, it was for a uh, unique theatrical experience. I produced a show called Celebrity Autobiography. Uh, I, I'm the producer and general manager of that show. And it's basically celebrities reading other celebrities' autobiographies. And, right. and people kind of, it, it's confusing, but when you have Alan Zweibel reading Joe Namath, it's just hilarious. Or you have Ryan Reynolds reading you know, Tommy Lee Jones, you know, because what a lot of these autobiographies are so banal. And, you know, they're just trying to, their publishers said, we need 5,000 words or 50,000 words. And they're just writing what they had for dinner, that it becomes very funny when you have great comedians reading these types of works. It was created by a, my partners, uh, Eugene Pack and Dale Raphael. They uh, they created it and I've, they've created it in Los Angeles. And they used to do these readings in little in little clubs and stuff like that. And they sent it to me and said, can you bring it to New York? So I brought it to New York. And that's the show that we actually won. It was very clever. We've had a lot of great people who want to do the show because it's just so fun to do. And it's the unique. It's different. It. it's different. It's unique. It's definitely unique, yeah.
1: Now, a few feet away from me, more than six feet away from me is my daughter. And I mentioned my daughter because she pushed me to do 23 Me.
2: Mm-hmm. I did and when
1: that too. And I, I got the results... There was a shocking outcome, which I'm not going to talk about today, but I think I'm going to save it for a personal podcast in the future. I mentioned that when you look at your version of 23andMe, how important is your family tree and your heritage leading to who you became because you are a very talented person?
2: Well, it's it's imperative. I, I think your childhood and, and your family shape exactly who you are, you know, either for the better or for the worse, I think. I had great support groups. I started dancing when I was six years old in a small mining town of Habien, Minnesota.
1: Bob Dylan Which, comes out of that area, didn't he? Yeah, right?
2: yeah. actually, his childhood house was like four, four houses down from mine, right? And I knew his brother, David, his and David, his brother David used to run the Orpheum Theater in Minneapolis when we used to do ballet there. I fell in love with a little girl. I, I started as a ballet dancer, and I remember when I was seven or eight years old, there was this little girl that I just wanted to dance with and I just wanted to see every week. And so I'd go to class and I just wanted to be with this girl and I I could hold her hand. I could dance with her. I could partner with her. And it was just, it was the most exciting thing for me. And I got picked on mercifully by some of the local kids but I was a, I was a pr- pretty scrappy boy, and I was very good in athletics as well. I was very competitive in a lot of sports. So I ended up earning a lot of people's respects. But it shaped me because my family never backed down from, from what I wanted to do. They never said, you shouldn't do this. Why are you doing this? They encouraged it, especially my father. He owned a sausage company. So we made Italian sausage, and, and we we're a wholesale and manufacturing company. I mean, there was all the reasons that he could have pushed me away from what I really loved to do. But even my wife, who grew up in the same hometown, I've been with my wife since I was 15 years old. We went to high school together. She always encouraged it as well, and her family encouraged it. So, you know, it was just that sort of support that you need. And uh, and actually, when I didn't get support, it made me work harder to prove people that they were wrong. And it was it was fun. I enjoyed what I did. And when you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. That's what I always say.
1: Uh, that's a good philosophy. My guest has been Angelo Vraboni, the Artistic Director of the Madison Theater. I, I gotta say, say hello to your staff for me. Kathleen um, and those people, they are high quality professional people. Your venue is terrific. And hopefully be more information coming about future events. Angela, thank you so much.
2: You're welcome very much. And thank you for having me today.
1: After the break. Brian D. Kaplan, the author of J.D. to J.D., My Journey from Juvenile Delinquent to Dr. Jurisprudence. I'm Larry Davidson, listening to the podcast, Artful Periscope. We'll be right back.
0: The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com.
1: I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back the podcast, Artful Periscope. We explore the nimble craft of storytelling. Right now, joining us is the author of J.D. to J.D., My Journey from Juvenile Delinquent to Doctor of Jurisprudence, Brian D. Kaplan. How are you doing, Larry? Uh, it's great to have you under these circumstances. So the first question is, health-wise, how are you and your family?
3: We're all doing really well. its uh, I did lose a friend a couple of weeks ago, and it is a very trying time for everybody, and everybody needs to be safe and careful, um, but you need to continue to live. And I think that your 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 broadcast, your podcast will help people in that regard.
1: Hopefully so. So talk about the book. Who is this book for, J.D. to J.D.? Who did you write it for besides yourself?
3: I wrote it for young people who've made mistakes during their life to realize that they can get a second chance, um, given the, giving them hopefully some hope and inspiration and and realize that even though you make mistakes as a youth, you can correct your path. And I wrote it for uh, people that wanted to learn about the entertainment industry as well, because I've been fortunate enough to have uh, interacted with uh, many interesting people over the years. And I thought that I would tell stories uh, that might entertain people. So it has uh, two factors to it.
1: You know, as, as we go through our lives, people tend to keep score about how famous we are may, or, or may not be, uh, our bank accounts, how well-known we are, are we famous or infamous, whatever. I think the way that I personally keep score is the amount of memories that I have. Because in the end, that's what we are. We are an amalgamation of our memories. And you can't take our memories away from us. A lot of things we can lose. That's one thing we always have. So based on this book, over the range of your life, how would you describe your memory? You know, as
3: I say in the book, at some point in time, I look at it as a glass and somebody says, is it half empty or half full? I see it as three quarters full. I've just always been a very positive person. And I think that being a positive person helps and shapes your memory because I remember 98% of good memories and 2% 2% of bad memories, because that's the way my track is. I, I look at things that way. And, I, uh, and it's helped me a lot. Uh, it also helps me deal with clients because I play psychologist, um, social worker, as well as advocate. So if you're counseling somebody, having a positive uh, impact and good memories rather than bad memories. So when I tell stories, I tell stories to try to make people laugh and lighten up. I don't, tell stories to make people get tense, depressed, angry, or of that nature.
1: You've had a fascinating life. I'll go back to the first part of the title, JD to JD, juvenile delinquent. Now we call them children at risk. Let's go back and talk about the memories of your childhood because you are what we call today, unless I'm wrong, a child at risk. Would that be accurate?
3: Yes, I was I was definitely at risk. And that's because I didn't have any true parental supervision. And if you don't have um, coddling and love and, and uh, uh, nurturing home, you tend to do stupid things and you can react in many ways. And I became a significant risk taker and made a lot of mistakes and took stupid pills on a regular basis and made mistakes left and right. Sometimes I got called for them, sometimes I didn't. And over time, uh, had a little bit of luck and got that second chance. I, I was a person at risk, and I certainly didn't help the situation by the choices I made, which put me more at risk. If you don't have people really telling you right from wrong at an early stage, juxtapose my life versus Angela, who just spoke. He right. had a nurturing environment. Um, and people that, uh, family that uh, helped him blossom. I didn't have that. I had a mother and dad in mental hospitals. I had a father who was not around very often and my parents got divorced when I was little. And then I had to make the decisions on my own and I made poor ones through the end of college. And then when I miraculously got into law school, I said, all right, let me give up my bad habits and try to do the right thing and not be so stupid.
1: I want to circle back to your mother, because when I read the book, what came in, in my mind was it's almost like a Southern Gothic novel. And I also want to refer to this family trees and our heritage. And sometimes we're, part of our DNA comes from that family tree and our heritage. Were you ever worried through your family tree and your DNA, you were ever going to have some of your mother's mental problems, because she's still, it's, she's still your mom and she's still part of your DNA and your heritage. And yes, she was a very interesting woman. Were you ever concerned that you were going to inherit any of those tendencies?
3: You, you know, with the same mentality that I look at a class as three quarters full, the answer is no. Not one day did I ever worry about having any mental illness. Other than taking the stupidity pills, I didn't ever think that my psyche was going to be prone to to depression or schizophrenia or anything of that nature. I just said, I got to do what I got to do to survive. And I sort of, at a young age, started telling people that I was a survivor. And I remember my grandmother saying to me, "That's, that's such a negative thing to say about yourself. You're not a survivor. You have so many things going for you. And I didn't tell her everything that was going on in my life because it just didn't seem appropriate. But I I truly, uh, for a period of time, thought that I was a survivor, because uh, if you're around somebody who can't take care of themselves and they're supposed to be the parent, it leaves you in a sort of an awkward position for a 10, 11, 12 and 13 year old to, you know, one, no right from wrong. Two, you can't be a caretaker because you're, you're not trained at it yet. So uh, it, it makes the learning curve all skewed.
1: All uh, right, My guest is Brian D. Kaplan, author of JD to JD, My Journey from Juvenile Delinquent to Doctor of Jurisprudence. Let's continue on that journey. What was your education like in public school and then at Brandeis, which was a really interesting time? The one thing we have in common, we were both lacrosse players. <laughs> I was a soccer lacrosse player, but I was still a lacrosse player. at at a D1 college, Bowling Green University in Ohio, and then Pace University for law school. Based on your track, if I didn't know you, and only knew you as a kid, even in high school, I was saying, how the hell did this happen? How did you end up at Brandeis, and how did you end up not in the Army, but at law school at Pace?
3: You know, some of us are lucky to have good memories and can synthesize information and are, are good test takers. And I don't know whether you're, 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 you're born with that or if it's trained, but at a point in time, if you're sitting in a class and you listen and it sinks in and other people, you could be sitting in a class and it doesn't sink in. And when I went to class, which wasn't always, the things sunk in. And so I was always a, a good test taker. I didn't have to spend a huge amount of time studying for exams until I got into law school. They had, you know, when we were in high school, they had cliff notes. So you could read yeah. the cliff notes for a, for a novel if you didn't read it and then get the general understanding of what it was about, which was, you know, it wasn't, you weren't supposed to be doing that, but plenty of people did. So I got into a college, which I didn't even visit. So I got into Brandeis. I didn't know anything about it. I applied to five colleges at um, a high school. Nobody was advising me and three friends were going there. So I said, all right, I'll try to go there. And then they let me in. And the first time I saw the campus was on uh, the first day of orientation of the year I started. And I made a lot of friends. I played lacrosse. I ran track. I uh, was was dealing marijuana to some people, Uh, you know, doing some stupid things. But uh, I, I met a lot of people and it helped shape me somewhat. But I was still making mistakes and being a significant risk taker. And it wasn't until I got into law school that I decided to uh, give up my bad habits and try to succeed. And I think that we're all, you're talking about your roots. right? And some people blame their childhood and uh, their parenting for what they do later in life. And I think that's just a total cop out. I think that you really, you need to take stock in yourself and do what is necessary for you to be an asset to society rather than Than a detriment to society and sometimes somebody can lead you along the way but ultimately it's your call to make to 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 decide which route you're going to take and i and i I, and i use the yogi bearer ism um you know you get to the fork in the road and he said you got to take it well you gotta when you get to that fork in the road and you have that second chance assuming that the what the fork brings you to you gotta gotta make the right decision and I've been really lucky. That's why I wrote the book because I feel so lucky to to have gotten that second chance and so lucky to have gotten into the entertainment industry and, and have met the people that I have met and to be able to tell the stories that I tell and to have people have faith in my ability to guide them in what's to them very important matters.
1: It's interesting that you mentioned Yogi Berra. There's a brand new book out about Yogi Berra, and the writer says he was never totally understood. He said, he was a very private person, very introspective and much smarter than the general public was led to believe because of all the yogiisms, And it's a fascinating book. But another look at a great Yankee, a great baseball player, Yogi Berra. Now, I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about your legal career. Uh, I love what HBO does. You're in the entertainment lawyer, so you understand the world of entertainment. There was a great series on HBO called The Night Of, starring Bill Camp, who now was in The Outsider, and John Turturro, who's now starring The Plot Against America, Philip Roth novel. It's great. It's on HBO. And in The Night Of, there's an, they're dealing with somebody in Rikers Island. You had experience in Rikers Island. I believe it's somebody named Richard Diaz. Tell that story, because after watching the night of and what happens when you go into Rikers Island and then reading your account in the book, please share that story.
3: Well, I actually saw the night of also. So I know what you're talking about. Yes, I did like it. I was a little bit let down by the the end of it, but other than that, it was, it was very well done and compelling. So I'm a young lawyer. I'm at a law school less than a year, and I'm given an A1 felony case to defend. And it's a drug possession case.
1: I'm going to stop right there, because I'm going to assume that we don't know as much as you know. What is an A1 felony?
3: 25 years to life in prison, if convicted. And um, we got a call from a lawyer in in Rhode Island who asked us to be his local counsel on the case. I made what's called the first court appearance, and then the attorney uh, was never heard of again. And I ended up doing the case pro bono, which means we're not getting paid for it. And so nobody in my firm was paying too much attention to the matter because we weren't getting paid. And they said, this is sort of something like you can cut your teeth on it. And so I represent a young man who is 19 years old. His mother paid for his plane fare to come from Puerto Rico to spend a week with his cousin. And he doesn't realize that his cousin is, is a, a cocaine dealer, crack cocaine dealer. And he's at his cousin's apartment. The, the, the cousin goes out into the street, and uh, undercover police officers arrest the cousin. They gain entry to the, to the apartment, and they arrest my client, who was the visitor from Puerto Rico, and now I'm asked to defend this young man. It's very easy to defend a criminal defendant if you think they're guilty. Not easy to defend a, a criminal defendant if you think they're innocent, and if you're young and wet behind the ears, and you're worried that um, your misstep could lead to somebody spending years in prison, it's a big burden. And so I met him in Rikers Island. I was so young and naive, I didn't realize that if I filled out a form, they would have brought him to the criminal courthouse from Rikers Island without me going to retrieve him or meet him. He spoke no English. I uh, went with an interpreter who met me there, and they couldn't find him. And they said, take a walk in this particular group of cells. We think he might be there. So I'm walking down unattended, a group of cells in Rikers Island, screaming out his name like an idiot. And I walk by uh, a man who's profusely bleeding from his eye into his face. And I turn and I, he startles me. And he says, what the F are you looking at? You think I look effing bad? You should see the three guys that were messing with me. And I'm wearing my suit and my little attache case, and I, I walked quickly away from there. My heart was beating hard in my chest, and ultimately they put me in a room with Richard. They found Richard, um, and they put me in a room with him, and we had a three-day hearing. And at the uh, end of the three-day hearing, the, the judge believed that Richard was really in the wrong place at the wrong time. And we were able to effectuate his release, which to me, uh, I'm giving you the quick version of the story, but to me was my best day as a lawyer, because I get to go into the holding facility where he had been for three months and 18 days. And with my little bit of Spanish, was able to say to him, "tué Libre. And he started crying and I started crying because it was, it was wonderful. He came out, he got on, he went back to my office, he called his mother and he was arranged to take the next flight. Out of New York and he never came back again.
1: My guest is Brian D. Kaplan, the author of JD to J D, My Journey from Juvenile Delinquent to Doctor of Jurisprudence. You almost anticipated my next question. I'm going to ask it anyway. I was listening to a podcast interview with Claire Danes, who's the star of HBO's homeland, talking about her character. And as she said as she started talking about her character, Carrie Matheson, her anxiety levels started raising. She got into the persona of the character which is a great insight because I'm just fascinated by things I don't know and wouldn't think of asking, but that was a great response to a question, an honest response coming from a terrific actress. Have you ever been in a situation, I have known you've been in dangerous situations, I read the book, A Certain Deposition, that you found your anxiety level was raising just based on who you were with or the situation you were facing?
3: The answer is yes. I've found that difficult clients are actually harder to deal with than difficult adversaries because you expect a difficult adversary. But when you are giving 110% for a client and the client acts out and takes things out on you because they can't handle the, the, the stress of the situation, well, that doubles the stress. And I've had a handful of Jury trials where I've dealt with difficult people and you know you have to manage expectations you have to manage egos and your are the stress level of a trial to begin with is huge so that if your client becomes a non-team player and becomes your adversary at the same time you're fighting with a real adversary that that creates a level of stress which is almost hard to, to describe but also, if you're, if you're good at what you do, you manage it and you compartmentalize so that you don't take things out on your client because you have a job to do. And the job to do is with, within the boundaries of the truth, win for your client and, and beat the other side if you can. So you have to manage the client. You have to manage the adversary. You have to manage the judge. And it's an interesting combination of factors all coming into play at the same time and understanding what makes people tick makes it easier for you to manage each of these different aspects of a of a jury trial.
1: So Brian talking about big egos and trying to understand what make people think your experience with Rodney Dangerfield.
3: Well, Rodney Rodney is an irascible was an irascible character and larger than life and off the screen he was he had the same components that he had on the screen. Always telling jokes, always wisecracking. And I was very fortunate at a young age to ask to spend a couple of days with him to defend him in a deposition. I went up to his apartment. He was on a treadmill wearing boxer shorts. (laughs) Um, He says, hey, Bri, come over here. Tell me a few jokes. Loosen me up. And if you can imagine, you know, a 26 year old lawyer wearing uh, a D class A three three piece suit with a little leather Uh, Attache case next to Rodney Dangerfield in boxer shorts on a treadmill telling him jokes. It actually doesn't even seem real. On the third joke, he laughed and stumbled. Uh, He said to me, I may use that in my next movie because he had just gone back to school. I said, Rodney, will you give me credit? He goes, Yeah, kid, thanks. Because Rodney deadpanned all these different things. We took a stretch. The biggest limousine I've ever been in, down to Maiden Lane to where the deposition was going to be. He told the driver to park on the sidewalk. We got into the elevator to go up. A young man jumps on the elevator. He might have been 18 or 19, and he pulls out the emergency stop button. I say to the young man, now I'm 26, so I'm not that much older than him. I say, what do you think you're doing? He says, I want to tell my friends I was hanging out with Rodney. And Rodney looks at me and he goes, you see, Bright? no respect. (laughs) respect, <laughs> because Rodney was on all the time so I, I mean the luck for a 26 year old to get to spend a handful of days with Rodney right after back to school everybody wanted to be with Rodney and I got thrown with him so I mean that that's one of many lucky stories I have in the book
1: well my audience is lucky to have some time spending with you and we're going to continue my guess is Brian D. Kaplan. The book is J.D. to J.D., My Journey from Juvenile Delinquent to Doctor of Jurisprudence. The other funny deposition was called the ugly deposition. You want to talk about that one?
3: Well, that, w- that was actually, I think you're talking about the ugly duckling?
1: The ugly duckling, thank you. Okay.
3: The Ugly well, That duckling. was not a deposition. That's a funny incident with a comedian who was a nervous nilly. See, you had to be careful. When I wrote this book, obviously you can't be, use any indiscretions and identify people because of the attorney-client privilege. So the, the book was actually reviewed by an, an ethicist to make sure that I didn't cross the line in anything I did. And I'm saying that because when I tell the next story, you would understand why you wouldn't want to be naming names. Anyway, a, a comedian gets alerted to the fact that somebody's going to sue him for paternity. And he's a pretty ugly guy. And, and it's not Rodney Dangerfield. And he's pacing back and forth in the office. And back then there was something called the equivalent of a paternity test, but it was called an HLA test. It had a 98% accuracy rate. And uh, we start dealing with the opposing counsel and about taking these tests. They want him to take the test, the baby to take the test, the mother to take the test. And we finally agreed to have a meeting at our office. And the mother comes to the office with her baby waiting for her lawyer. We all go into a conference room, and after about 10 minutes of us all being in the conference room, the mother unswaddles the baby from the blanket that's surrounding her. And with all due respect, it's one of the ugliest babies I've ever seen in my life. The the comedian looks at the baby, Everybody in the room looks at the baby. We take a break. We agree that no blood test was necessary. (laughs) Life works in mysterious ways, and um, the duckling did not fall far from that tree.
1: Or the pond, in a sense.
3: Yes, exactly.
1: There's another story that my audience is going to really say, did this really happen? But it did really happen. You were in the judges' chambers with Mike Mike Tyson. And Donald, Donald Trump. Donald Trump. So you got to talk about that one because the names are already in the book.
3: Well, I, I wrote that before Trump was running for president. I, I wrote that probably about seven or eight years ago, that chapter. So it wasn't written to try to get any notoriety for the book or anything like that. Donald Trump was Mike Tyson's advisor for a year, a year and a half when he had his casinos down in Atlantic City. So Trump was in the middle And we had a lawsuit representing Trump against a former manager. The judge on the case uh, was not happy about having the notoriety of the case in front of him and all the reporters. And we he called the settlement conference, so we're all in one room together. And basically, the way I described it, when you're in the room with Donald Trump, he's the only one in the room because he really didn't care about anybody else. It's all about him, whether you like him or don't like him. For his politics is a different issue. But it's Trump and the rest of the world when you're in the room with him. And Tyson were uh, going back and forth. George Foreman was in the process of coming back and uh, having a comeback from his career. And Trump says to Tyson, will you fight Foreman? And Tyson smiles with his gold tooth. He didn't have the tattoo on his forehead at the time and says, I can't fight the man because I killed the man. And Trump keeps badgering him. And finally, he says, for the right amount of money, would you fight Foreman?" And Tyson says, for the right amount of money, I'd do anything. And he smiles. And Trump got his way in the conversation. And that conversation ended. The case ultimately resolved. But it was very interesting to meet Tyson and Trump, especially for me as a sports enthusiast, when Tyson, at the youngest age ever, became the heavyweight champion of the world. Meeting him was a, a, a great experience for me.
1: Now you are a respected entertainment lawyer, and music is, has a special part in my life as well, many other people's lives. In fact, in some of the podcasts that we do, we do live singer songwriters, and I love that aspect of it because it says an awful lot to what I believe in, and also your involvement with that. So you've had some interesting experience in the entertainment field. Is it true you were hanging out with the Rolling Stones?
3: Well, it, that that would be a little bit of an overstatement. I have spent time, a minimal amount of time, with Keith Richards because he's an average Joe, and he invited me to a party he threw. So I have a small chapter called Rolling With Some Stones, and I had the fortunate time to go to a party he threw where he treated me like I was his brother, even though he didn't know me very well. And then Charlie Watts, the, the drummer, went on tour with jazz musicians from the U.K., And I think I was 26 or 27 at the time. And they had me go on the tour bus to make sure that if anybody from the entourage acted out or got disorderly, that they had a lawyer with them to uh, help save the day. So I was sort of babysitting for the tour bus and, and its inhabitants when I was 26 or 27, which... Uh, at the time, didn't strike me as unusual, but then looking back on it, it seems very unusual. Considering there was nobody probably under the age of 52 or 53, and the jazz musicians that were part of that entourage. So again, these are little tidbits. It's not like the the Rolling Stones were my friends or anything of that nature. Some of my clients I've become friends with and have been extremely lucky over the years to do that. But it's you know it's a it's a case by case basis you know if you defend somebody in a deposition there is a level of intertwineness between you and your client that it's hard to describe If you're a fairly intimate person you get to know a client through defending them in a deposition the way a psychiatrist or a good friend would get to know somebody and I've developed friendships with a handful of really lovely individual clients over the years and I've been lucky to, to have had that opportunity.
1: This is the first time we're meeting. We do know somebody in common. Tom Steinbeck. John Steinbeck's son. And you spent some time with Tom. I did an interview with him for my television program. Two interviews back to back. He wanted to stay for one. He wanted to stay for two. So Gail was there too. And it's a great story. And I want you to tell your story about spending time with the son of one of America's great writers. A week later, after the interviews, I get a call saying my nephew's husband is coming with his wife to perform at a club on Long Island. Can you put them on your radio program to help promote them? And if you have room, can they come on your TV program? I said, sure, I'll do that. You know, the line between John Steinbeck to Tyne Steinbeck to your relatives, no-brainer. Well, her nephew's wife is Sarah Lee Guthrie. (laughs) Woody and Arlo, and they come with her husband, to my TV studio, I am sitting across from Woody's granddaughter, Arlo's daughter, we're talking and they're performing. And I (laughs) said, the last interview that I ever do, I'm good with that. So tell me about the time you spent with Tom, because I love him and he's since passed away.
3: You know, there's a short chapter in the book called, it has to do with three different experiences I had in Los Angeles in less than 48 hours. And one of them was meeting with Tom and, and Gail Steinbeck at their home and going out to dinner. And Tom was a lovely man. And he told all these stories about growing up around his father, John Steinbeck, and how people would treat John Steinbeck as a luminary, as a basically almost an official. And people would wait out online to, to see him. And he would tell me all of the people that would come in to meet John Steinbeck and play with, with little Tom when he was a, a child. And he told me about Albert Einstein coming to visit his father and then him being on Albert Einstein's lap. Of course, he didn't know who Albert Einstein was because he was a toddler. He was just such a down-to-earth guy. And Tom and, and Gail, they invited me in their home, and they made me feel like I was a family member for the you know the, the four or five hours that we were together, just really human, basic people that kind and sweet. And uh, it must've been extremely difficult to have been a a Tom Steinbeck, because when you have a father that has such a huge persona, you know, you can never match that persona and you're living a little bit in the shadow of your father, regardless of how loving he may or may not have been, because I don't know of their relationship, but Tom was a, a down to earth guy. We talked about the Civil War and Lincoln, because I'm a Lincoln person, and he was just uh, really, really sweet. Uh, In that same, within 24 hours of that, I went into the studio with uh, one of the top music producers of all time, a gentleman by the name of Rodney Jerkins, and he allowed me to sit in after a deposition in his studio, and he created a beat, um, a musical bed to a song from scratch within about 15 minutes that I was humming to myself when I left his studio. And it just, to me, that blew me away as well because I could see the talent that this man had. And he's I think he's done, uh, his records have done 300 million plus in record sales from the stuff he's produced. But amazing talent. So I've been very lucky.
1: I want to ask one last question. We're at the back end, so unfortunately we need a short answer. But When I read the book, two um, movies came to my mind. One was Basketball diary starring Leonardo DiCaprio and the other was a Bronx Tale, Chaz Palmitteri's movie. I look at you. I look at your story. I look at all the things that you've done, where you were, where you are now. There's a movie there. There's a movie there. Now you're in the entertainment world. I don't know if you've been approached, but you have a fascinating, not a Bronx Tale, but a tale to tell. Has that ever crossed your mind?
3: You know, listen, if somebody, I didn't write the book to sell a lot of copies. I wrote the book because I thought it could help some people and entertain others. I think that when you don't have a household name and you write a memoir, it's hard to get a lot of traction. Obviously, you're helping me by by doing this podcast. I think that anybody who's read the book finds it fascinating and interesting and entertaining. If somebody approached me, would I talk? Sure. I think there is a story to be told if somebody wants to tell it. But there's there's a lot of worthwhile stories out there. Mine goes in the in in the chronological list of many, and if, if I'm lucky, somebody will pick it up. If not, no problem.
1: All right. I hope in the future we get a chance to meet.
3: We'll meet face to face one day. Thank you so much for having me on.
1: You've been very very good. Till next time, I'm Larry Davidson. Bye bye.
0: The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisifaro, Sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all.
2: She tied you to her kitchen chair. She broke your throat and she cut your hair.